This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to Out With Susie Ruffle. This is Series 4, Episode 7. As always, thank you so much for everyone that's got in touch with me after last week's episode. Loads of you said such lovely things. I really appreciate it. Rating and subscribing to the show really, really helps other people find it. So if you've got time to do that, that would be super. And as ever, if you want to get in touch with me, you always can. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, or you can email me directly at hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I have got a fantastic episode for you today. The brilliant Adam Kay, who you might know as the author of This Is Going To Hurt, Memoirs of a Junior Doctor, a book that I absolutely loved. You'll hear me just fangirling the whole way through the episode. Um, I think he is absolutely brilliant and I loved this conversation with him. But before we get into that, as ever, I will share some of your brilliant listener emails. I'm always blown away by how many of you get in touch with me. So thank you so, so much for that. And uh, yeah, let's have a listen to what some other people have to say. Hi Susie, I just caught up on your brilliant interview with Jane Hill and I wanted to say thank you for such a wonderful episode, which has really helped and reassured me for all sorts of reasons. I related to so much of what Jane said in her story from not fully accepting my sexuality because I didn't think gay women looked like me, to not being able to get through coming out conversation, even with some of my best friends, for some reason that I have never been able to or maybe willing to confront. I was also quite an introverted teenager and I never had the confidence to explore myself or confront questions about my sexuality until late in university. I only really started to explore and enjoy myself after graduating. When Jane spoke of catching up on experiences other people had as adolescents in her early 20s, it articulated very well my own experience and my current struggles as the pandemic and lockdown cycles have left me with this crippling fear that I will never fully catch up with my friends, who, for the most part, have started to settle into relationships. It has all left me feeling like I might be left behind. I'm 26, so I often feel embarrassed about still being so unsure of myself and not feeling like I have fully embraced my identity and enjoyed it rather than simply accepted it. I apologise for the rambling nature of this email. I'm not really sure why I wrote it, but I suppose I haven't been able to talk to family or friends about this as speaking freely about these things still doesn't come easily to me and everyone has found this last year and a half tough so I don't want to make it all about me either. So when I heard you and Jane chat about so many issues that I relate to and address so many doubts that I have it was a really lovely experience and made me feel so much more anchored than I have in a while. 
especially as Jane is so fabulous with a wonderful career and went on to meet and marry her partner. It gave me hope and reminded me that the path in life is long and I'm not as lost as I might feel. Your podcast was a recent discovery for me and it's been really brilliant. It's such a great resource for LGBT people who don't have a wide LGBT circle. So thanks for all the work that you do. Best wishes. Now I'm going to try and say your Irish name correctly. Breege. I think that's right. Breege. Well, thank you, Breege. I hope I'm saying your name right. Um, I loved that interview with Jane. I think she's so brilliant. I love her. She's just great, isn't she? Um, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, take Breege's word for it. It is a really, really good one. And uh, she is just fantastic. And, you know, I didn't meet uh, my partner until I was uh, 31. And, you know, I think sometimes that we assume that everything should happen really quickly. I had relationships and met different people, but I didn't meet the person that I was supposed to be with until I was, what, five, five, nearly six years older than you? So, you know, there's plenty of time, and I'm sure you know that, and I don't know whether it's helpful for me to say that, but I remember feeling similar to how, how you said that you feel, and uh, I'm, just, I'm just so pleased that conversation with Jane meant so much to you, and I thank Jane again for sharing her story, and... Uh, yeah thank you for listening to the show and thank you for saying such lovely things about it i hope that it gives you a lot of hope okay let's go on to another listener email hello susie i've been a listener to the pod since the first fantastic episode back in 2020 when lockdown was just starting there have been many episodes after which i wanted to write an email to you about that episode but i never did for some reason however this past episode episode three of series four rose schmitz yes i'm a little bit behind made me finally open up my laptop and start writing this email. I suppose it is because I found myself relating to Rose in ways I didn't think I would at the start of the episode. To start, I as well grew up in Delft, in the Netherlands, in I guess roughly the same time as Rose, and I'm also part of the LGBTQIA community, but that's where it stops. I'm a cis woman and I'm fortunate enough to live through high school mostly undetected by the popular bullies surrounded by a small but supportive group of friends. I came out to my parents who are both quite progressive and looking back were friends with a lesbian couple across the road. Funny story, I only realised that when looking back and talking with my parents about me being queer in the past year. Quite beautiful how children easily accept different types of relationships if their own environment is accepting. Yes, absolutely, here, here. But I'm getting sidetracked. In the first half of the episode with Rose, I went from excitement about a fellow, now I hope that I get this right, Delphna, Delphna, which I'm guessing is someone from Delft. Uh, so from excitement as a fellow Delphna to getting defensive about it. Delft is wonderful and it's cute and it has its charm and people aren't as homo and transphobic as she makes out. But listening while cycling, how Dutch? Back when I got home from doing groceries, I realised that's my experience and her experience doesn't make mine any less valid. When I got home, I listened to the episode again and thought back through my school days. Like Rose, I wasn't out at school. There were rumours about me being a lesbian, but then why would I entertain people I didn't particularly like with my most vulnerable inner thoughts? The word gay was being used as a slur and at my school, which was and still is very Catholic, homophobia wasn't actively being addressed. It didn't feel like a safe subject. I felt like I was the only gay person in the school. So at the end of the episode, I ended up relating to quite a lot of what Rose said and going through similar experiences in my head. I guess I have a new British show to watch now. You absolutely do. It's brilliant. 
I came out as a lesbian in the first three months of university. Utrecht is maybe not as far as London, but it was far enough to start afresh. And that's what I did. I came out first to my friends, and when I got my first girlfriend later that year, to my parents and Catholic family. Since then, we're 10 years, two exes, and three different labels further. I found my identity through some heartbreak, bad decisions, and a lot of talking about it. I'm out and proud as a queer woman, but lesbian didn't quite feel right. Neither did pansexual or bisexual, because guess what? I sort of also like men, but I kept falling in love with women. I still don't really know my label, and that's okay. In retrospect, I've had it quite easy. I've had my fair share of homophobia, and I've had some violence directed at me because of my sexuality, but I've never been denied healthcare or vital medical procedures for years because there was a waiting list. I volunteer for a group of LGBT youth aged 11 to 19. In my conversations with trans youth, it became crystal clear that having just the letters LGB, we are failing our fellow members of the LGBTQIA community. We're not being inclusive enough and not fighting hard enough for better trans care, more accessible health care, and better acceptance across our whole community. I will keep fighting for inclusiveness. Honestly, inclusivity is one of the best aspects of your podcast. You make a conscious effort to be as inclusive as possible, and I love that. If you ever decide to book a comedy gig in the Netherlands, I'll be there. For now, this email is getting too long and I won't bore you any further. Best wishes, Joyce. Uh, And you've told me I'm allowed to use your name. Uh, First of all, the email was not getting boring. I was loving it. So you didn't bore me at all. Uh, Secondly, thank you so much for saying what you said about inclusivity. I try so hard to get it right and to make sure that I'm covering as many stories as possible. I would love to have uh, all sorts of different types of people on the podcast and I'd love to have more people of colour on the podcast and I am trying to do that but yes inclusivity is so important to me and I'm really thrilled that you highlighted that. One thing in your email that did strike me was when you said that you've had it easy even though you've been the victim of some homophobia and some sort of violence directed at you because of your sexuality. Isn't that sad that we think that 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 you've had it easy even though people have been unkind to you about something that you don't control. I guess that shows why we still have a journey to go on and why this podcast still needs to be made. Hopefully one day I'll be able to sign off by saying, guys, we've done it. We don't need this podcast anymore. But until that day, I will keep trying to make it. But thank you so, so much. If I do a gig in the Netherlands, I promise to let you know. I'd love to do a gig in the Netherlands. That'd be fun. Um, But thank you so, so much for writing in and for being such an ally and for the work that you do with the youth LGBT plus community. It's so important and um, I loved your email. So thank you, Joyce. Joyce was also my nan's name. Um, Okay, let's get into today's conversation. It's with the brilliant Adam Kay. I absolutely loved this one. I think he's brilliant. If you haven't read his book, I highly recommend it. I hope you love this podcast. I am so excited to welcome today's guest, Adam Kay. You'll probably be aware of him because a couple of years ago he had the biggest breakout book that you can even imagine. It was called This Is Going To Hurt and it is simply outstanding. It's hilarious and heartbreaking and it's his diaries of when he was a junior doctor in the NHS. It spent a year at number one on the Sunday Times bestsellers list and it was a best-selling non-fiction book of the decade and the best-selling non-fiction e-book of all time. 
It's won countless awards and I have never met anyone that didn't enjoy it. It's also soon to be made into a BBC series, which I can't wait for. I remember reading it quite a few years ago while I was on tour and laughing hysterically and occasionally sobbing while on trains up and down the country. Adam's second book, Twas the Night Shift Before Christmas, was also an instant bestseller. Adam went on to write Dear NHS, a hundred stories to say thank you, and a number of children's books. I'm not kidding when I say This Is Going To Hurt is one of the best books I have ever read. Funny, charming, sensitive, heartbreaking, beautiful storytelling at its absolute best. And a reminder of why we should all do everything we can to save the NHS. I'm absolutely delighted he's here with me today. Hello, Adam. Hi, thank you so much. Wow, I think that's the nicest introduction I've ever had. Well, I don't know if it is because everyone loves your book. Yeah, but a lot of people are just like, oh, here's some bloke who wrote a book. Right, okay. Well, I, I mean it. I only have people on the podcast I'm genuinely love to talk to. I do get hate to. mail about the book. I mean... Do you? Yeah, a bit, 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 bit of it. You should never read your own reviews, obviously. But of it's sort of, it's harder when people literally email you with their thoughts. And, um, you know, but I think hopefully it's outnumbered by the people who didn't hate it. So, yeah. We met years ago on the comedy circuit. Yeah. Um, briefly. But there was a time, and obviously you probably won't well you might be aware of this but there was a time when I feel like every groom in the country one of the comics was reading this is going to hurt it was just became a thing that everyone in my sphere was reading and because we sort of some of us sort of met you or some of us knew you it felt like have you seen what he's done have you seen this thing it was very <laughs> exciting yeah no one was more surprised than me to be honest I don't know what happened I think it, it, it clearly caught a caught a wave um mm. at the time and, you know, it's it's essentially a love letter to the NHS. And hopefully there's tens of millions of people in this country who feel the same love for it that I do and, and you do. And um, also it's, it's reasonably disgusting. And I think that finds an audience <laughs> as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I was just before we started recording, I was saying how much my uh, little cousin was enjoying your new kids book which is quite gross <laughs> it's reasonably gross I think that's my I don't know I think that's my trademark I think it's sort of in a way um all of my books whoever they're written for whether it's grown-ups or for kids are a slight confidence trick whereby it promises one thing and slightly delivers another so with my adult books it's very much this is going to be funny slash disgusting and actually through those books I'm hopefully uh, telling my story mm-hmm. and uh, in sort of sort of lifting the lid a bit on some of the harder stuff and the sort of more mental health stuff that that uh, that doctors deal with. And, and with the kids, I'm saying this is just full of poo. And in fairness, it is. But also, hopefully, I'm getting them interested in, excited in and knowledgeable about the human body, which like it or not, they're going to have to know about. Yeah, absolutely. So often on this podcast, we sort of go a bit chronologically through your life, if that's Ooh, okay yeah. with you. Fair enough. If that's, if that's okay. I'll do that. I'll see how far back I can remember. <laughs> I sort of like dipped into the book this week again, knowing that I was going to chat to you. But I thought, I wonder, if, are you sort of sick of talking about this is going to hurt? You I must have talking done. about myself. It's my favourite topic. <laughs> Literally a book about my life. <laughs> oh, well, then that's fine. I am so grateful to everyone who's read the book. And I sort of, it does wind me up when people moan about having to do publicity or something. Yeah, you know, right. Having to do. Um, because it's never having to do. It's, it should be a delight. And um, I, I love when people are, are interested in this in this stuff because the more people read about, you know, about the NHS, hopefully the more people are, are invested in it. And so yeah. absolutely not. Ask ask away. Oh, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. So I know that you grew up in 
Did you did you grow up in Dulwich? I know you went to Dulwich College. I did, yes. Yeah. So I was born in Brighton and my dad was a doctor. And so as a doctor, you're constantly moving around. So I didn't live in Brighton uh, ah. very long, but it's on my passport. And then moved to South London, where, where, where I lived until I disappeared off to, to university. And I went to this... Um, this school, Dulwich College, which is one of these sort of, it's like a minor public school, I guess, sort of. It, it thinks it's eaten, but it, it <laughs> isn't. And, uh, but, you know, it sort of grew up in this sort of very sort of august, Hogwartian environment, which I guess did two things for me. One was these sort of schools were a sausage factory that churn out doctors and lawyers and mm. architects and civil servants and all that. And so it sort of got me on that train. But the other thing it did is it exposed me to any number of sort of interesting extracurricular things that, um, that you know, one of these fancy schools that you pay for. I mean, it shouldn't be the case. Every kid everywhere should have the opportunity to learn all the instruments they want and do all the drama they want and be able to write for the school newspaper. And obviously they can in, you know, in many state schools, but there is obviously a lot of inequality and unfairness. And the biggest unfairness of all is that you get more of that if your parents decide to 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 pay for it. It was an all boys school, which I don't think I recommend as a as a concept, it meant I hadn't really ever spoken to a girl until I went to university, which sort of compounded my my social difficulties by sort of factor of ten when I got there. But yeah, no, that was uh, yeah, that was that was what school was like for me. I live in southeast London, so I occasionally drive past Dulwich College. And it is sort people of, can't see on Zoom, but we're doing we're doing Southeast London gang signs to each other. Yes, at the moment. we are. That's important that everybody knows that. You, when you sort of drive past it, it feels sort of it's almost overwhelming how it takes over this like there's a there's a bit of there's a bit of the grounds that you can see and there's like this massive building which is very sort of ornate and a and a bit over the top going to a school like that every day I've spoken to some people I've got friends that went to Eton and some of them sort of felt like they just fitted in immediately and that felt very normal for them to be in that sort of environment how did it feel for you that's a really good question. I think the truth of it is I've never really felt like I fit in in any environment, so which is just part, you know, part of part of me. But I definitely never felt, because they made you dress like a deck chair and <laughs> these buildings. So they were built by, oh, I should remember this. Yeah, Charles Barry was the name of the architect, who was the son of another Charles Barry who built the Houses of Parliament. And it's sort of, it's a very similar design mm. to the Houses of Parliament. It's got his own little you know, big Ben and it's these these... I mean, it's like sort of gothic style, I would say, like a gothic revival or something. And I don't know how anyone could 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 live or work in a building like that and think, you know, that's right. Even Jacob Rees-Mogg must look around at that sort of place and be like, this is a bit weird, a bit much. <laughs> but having lived in the in the area, you know, longer than I'd, I'd gone to the school, I was very aware of it. And it was the sort of, I don't know, it was always like a sort of exciting place that I was interested to um, to, to, to know more about. I guess I could have just gone on a tour and save, save, save myself half a decade <laughs> of lessons. But I mean, I'm, I'm grateful to the, to the school for, you know, I, I've got a lot of extra weird skills. 
like a sort of things I, I learned, like I, I got really good at using Photoshop because I worked on the, the school magazine and I can play the saxophone and the piano and the trombone and the harpsichord. Who else is, gets harpsichord lessons? Um, we had wine tasting lessons. Actually, that was this was a disaster. I'm not entirely, I don't particularly want to ask why uh, teachers wanted to get 15-year-old boys drunk on Friday evenings. But anyway, so it happened. So um, we would go to this place called the Old Library uh, where there would be loads of wine laid out and we'd just get hammered. I think once a month it was like fortified wines and spirits and things. So then we get even more hammered. But the result of that was that when I went to university aged 18, when everyone else was drinking, you know, the normal <laughs> three pound black towers and stuff and blue nuns and 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 all the rest, for some reason, I'd already been exposed to these 60 pound bottles of wine. So it, it took me a really long time to recalibrate back down to shit wine. So I don't thank them for that. That is, I mean, I love the idea that like 16 year old you would have a better understanding of wine than me, who's, and I've done a fair <laughs> amount of drinking of it, to be quite honest. I absolutely didn't learn anything about wine. Other than, <laughs> Just knew what you other liked. Other than drinking it, yeah. And so was it sort of, preordained almost that you would become a doctor with your dad being a doctor was it is that was it sort of the family trade I think so I mean obviously I know I don't have kids but um people I understand want the best for their kids and I think if you're a doctor and my dad loved being a doctor he really did and there's no denying the fact that it's an amazing job and you really contribute to society and also it's a you know it was a stable job a secure job you know he had a sort of a nice comfortable life from the job so it's sort of to him it was a sort of perfect scenario and so wanting the best for your kids for him meant a job like that and so I don't know if I was strong armed into it but certainly it was the default setting unless I came up with another plan and it, you know and I went to as I say the sort of school that that is happy to turn you into one of those people so I went off on the conveyor belt and so I'm one of four I'm the eldest of four and our degrees were medicine medicine law medicine so that is the family setup but my husband James is also the eldest of four and his dad worked in advertising, still does in fact. And so their idea of a, a sensible, safe, best for your kids uh, life was very different. So mm. the four of them, uh, James is a producer uh, in telly and then another TV producer and then a musician, then another TV producer. So I know that that sort of job is, an, is absolutely baffling to, to my parents who are still reasonably baffled how I'm able to pay the mortgage because they live in a world where sensible jobs are things like medicine. Yeah, I th it's so interesting, isn't it? When you meet someone whose parents uh, work in the industry, you sort of go, oh, you didn't have to sort of, I had to sort of like come out to my parents as a comedian. Like they'd, <laughs> they'd sort of like, they'd, they'd sort of got on board with the idea of a lesbian. But then once I had to say, also, I want to do this weird thing with my life and I'm never going to be 100% sure where, well, for the next little while, I'm not going to be 100% sure where the next pay packet's coming from. And I'm going to drive all over the country. And sometimes people will actively not want to hear what I'm saying. And then you've got to get back from Durham. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but, but, and I'm going to dedicate my life to this. Uh, they yeah. have to be like, oh, Okay, but when you meet people whose parents get it, it's it's slightly different. Yeah, and I think it would probably be just as weird for for James's parents if they all turned out to be 
like doctors yeah. as if as if you know if i'd have said from the outset i'm going to be a writer or a comedian or something like that. there were always the urges there so i have always written and i've always scribbled down in diaries and i've mm. always sort of enjoyed making funny things you know or making people laugh or as a defense mechanism or whatever it is that's always been in there somewhere but i probably didn't have the right environment for that to become plan a were you popular at school did you have like a were you like the funny one in your group of mates no i wasn't i wasn't popular at school and i think humor was a way of getting in with people mm. and i'm sure i'm not the only comedian who's found that if you don't have much to bring to the the table in the conventional top trumps at school and you're not you know you're not one of the people who's popular because they're really rich or popular because they're captain of the rugby team or popular because they're really beautiful. You're sort of in this sort of hinterland. One of the things that you can, some people can pull on is is sort of trying to, trying to be funny because then at least people will talk to you a bit. So I think humour has been a, a defence mechanism for me in all sorts of different ways, coping mechanism really, from the sort of social aspect of it, not just at school, but even even now. I mean, I, I don't love turning it on when I'm, you know, when I'm at when I'm a party or at the pub or whatever, but I sort of know I have to because it sort of greases the wheels a bit and it sort of makes conversation easier if I'm chucking in a, a, a line that makes someone laugh. I guess with writing my diaries, that was a wasn't intended to be a book it was a a selfish act of self-preservation writing this funny stuff down to cope with the bad stuff that was happening on the on the outside I think that's the incredible thing about the book because I've got I mean I think everyone should but I have such a huge respect for doctors and recently I I was I was at A&E with a friend and they were quite poorly and I just couldn't stop saying thank you to them and I was like this has been amazing thank you so much I don't care that we've had to wait thank you for looking after us it doesn't matter that we've been here all day we're okay now sort of thing and I think that in reading your book or both of your books, in fact, you get such an insight into the world that we don't see behind the the blue curtain, as I think one, I don't know whether that was a PR thing that you said or something that a critic said, but it's such a interesting place to be where we don't, I sort of always imagine doctors to, to not have that sort of slightly funny side of them, to be sort of quite serious all the time. And maybe that's just because of my GP growing up. Well, I think you want your doctor to be, you want your doctor to be lots of things. First and foremost, they need to be totally infallible and absolutely yes, correct. If possible, please. At every, at every step. You, you, uh, of course. You want that. And and I think you, you want and you, you want them to have an appropriate manner mm. with you. And I think appropriate depends on who you are. So I I guess I would speak to you as a patient differently to your great aunt mm-hmm. uh, and but i think the job of a doctor is at least 80% communication because if you don't have that rapport yeah then nothing nothing works you know we've all seen you know professionals of whatever description in the past where you just instantly don't like them and you're like well i'm not listening to your accounting advice i'm not listening to your physiotherapy advice medical advice whatever it is and so they're more likely to remember things you know if you're better at communicating them mm. and um the old fashioned way is to say this thing is wrong this is what we're going to do 
that is very off-putting for a patient. The correct thing to do is, here is what I think is the matter, and here are all the various options. And this is, you know, here's, here's, your, here's your short list, here's your menu, and this one has this problem, that one's got that problem. If it was me, I would probably do, do this one, but you're not me. So that's the modern way of doing it, the less sort of patronising, patrician, mm. you know, version of being a doctor. So I don't think in my mind humour is out of keeping with with bedside manner. I think mm. it, it's a way to... I'm not saying doctors should crack jokes, but also <laughs> at, the, at the same time, just having a slight you know, twinkle and way of, and trying to establish a rapport is probably more helpful than, and I always use your first name as a doctor. I think when someone comes over and says, hello, my name's Professor Higgins or whatever, then that's, uh, I think that's a bad start. I didn't really know about how much junior doctors have to move around and like the parts of the book where you're like sleeping in your car because you've got a shift that starts in like three hours because your other shift went on so long. I mean, it feels like that's a conversation until your book about the mental health of doctors that just hadn't been discussed at all. Not Certainly not in, in a public sphere as much as someone that isn't connected to medicine at all would have heard it. Was it something that you felt was at all being looked after? No, I think it was something that I thought a voice that could certainly be amplified. Because mm. um, the book was ended up getting put together around the time of the junior doctor strikes of a few years yes. ago. And for anyone who doesn't remember what was going on then, basically a new contract was being imposed upon the nation's junior doctors. And junior doctors, by the way, is a doctor who is below consultant level. So that some of these junior doctors are age 40 and they're pretty, pretty senior, but that's the, this sort of weird, slightly unhelpful umbrella term. And this contract was quite demonstrably unfair. And it was going to ultimately affect patient safety and you know the quality of care that these doctors could deliver if they had to do the hours this contract stated. So, and the doctors pushed back and the government, with their really loud voice, said, oh, these doctors are being greedy and they want more money and how dare they? And did you know that they're already on this? And, and the government have a very loud voice and they won the battle and won the war and the new contract came in and surprise, surprise, it wasn't great for the patients and, and here we are. So what I was trying to do was just sort of explain through the diaries I'd already kept in a hopefully slightly light touch way so I wasn't ramming down people's throats the pressures that doctors are under and essentially the madness of the concept that these people might be doing it for the money because <laughs> there's a much easier if you're driven by money if that's what you want there's a much easier way of converting your A's at A level into hot cash than yeah. going to medical school for, for six years and then working as a junior doctor for eight years and dotting around the country and just go into the city. Yeah. If you're smart enough to be a doctor, you can probably make more money than being a doctor. You can cut out 15 years of work and get straight to a doctor's ultimate salary within a year of, you know, I know, I know some of my, my mates went straight from university when I was halfway through my course to the salary that I would hopefully be getting when I was a consultant down the line. And that's, you know, so sure. And everyone's welcome to do all sorts of jobs for all sorts of reasons. But the idea 
that doctors will be in it for the cash. Maybe some are. I mean, you can't, you know, there will always be exceptions. There will be a couple of plastic surgeons working privately over there mm. and a hip surgeon working over there who've just decided to cash it all in and make as much money as possible and whatever. But I think rounding up, there aren't there aren't really any doctors who who got into it for the cash. So and and part of that was just explaining the various challenges of the job. And like you say, one of the big ones that lots of people didn't realise was this idea that pretty much once a year you move to a different hospital. And the theory is really strong. The theory is you work at this hospital, then that, and the other one, and the other one. And one is an expert in this part of, you know, this this corner of medicine, one expert in that. And you learn from different people in different sizes of hospitals to become the best possible version of yourself as a consultant. But this falls down because you're scattered around wide areas. So like you could be scattered in different hospitals around Scotland. And, you know, it's difficult to find a flat that's handy for all of Scotland. And you might be able to say to your other half, unless you exist in a vacuum, you know, do you mind if we move 80 miles away? And and they might say yes once, but are they going to mm-hmm. say yes seven years in a row? Probably not, because they've probably got their own lives and their own friends and their own jobs. And so that's one of the things I wanted to people to realise. And like the effect it has on your life so mm. not just missing you know i worked on labor ward babies don't care if it's the 25th of <laughs> december or the 25th of february so you know obviously you miss a load of christmases and you miss you know weddings and birthday parties and stag do's and hen do's and whatever it is but also it's sort of more insidious things that happen like so basically if it's five o'clock and someone starts you know bleeding out and you're meant to leave at five o'clock. You don't leave at five o'clock. You leave at eight o'clock. Because mm-hmm. if, if that was actually a choice for you, you'd have never gone to medical school in the first place. So you stay. And it means that all the time you're texting someone saying, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to bail on dinner or drinks or whatever it is. And which is fine. And everyone understands and they know what your job is. But by the time you've texted the same person to cancel two or three times in a row, You've become the flaky friend and you just stop getting invited to stuff and your social circle just contracts and things like that I wanted to just have people think about and the fact that doctors get ill and doctors are are human and, and doctors struggle mentally and like... I mean, it's not just the public who doesn't realise this. Even medical students don't realise this. No one told me at any point in the process, this is how you're going to have to cope with the the bad stuff. There was no toolkit provided. And, you know, there were lots of things you can do. But in fact, as a doctor, you're actively encouraged not to talk about stuff. You know, Mm. you bloody get on with it because you're a bloody doctor. And so that's the sort of stuff that I wanted people to, to, to read, I guess, under this guise of silly, funny, disgusting. And did it feel quite exposing? Did you have to like really consider whether you were going to share your, your diaries? Was it, did you think, oh, like the, the, once this is out there, obviously you didn't know that it was going to be read by so many people. <laughs> it's such a huge hit and translated into so many different languages. Was there a moment where you had to really consider it? So, so here's here's the gestation of the book. So, around the time of the junior doctor strikes, just just afterwards, in fact, I went up to the Edinburgh Festival, and I uh, and this was the first time I'd ever my diaries had ever gone out there in any way. 
long before the book. And I talked about some of the stuff and some of the way that the job affects the human. I saw that show. You saw that show? Yeah, I did. (laughs) And the show, as indeed the book, end with the reason that I left medicine, which was a, you know, I won't make your, your podcast too depressing, but it was a very bad day at work. And when you're working on labor ward, obviously the bad days are incredibly bad. Just like the highs are incredibly high, the lows are unbearably low. And that made me realize that I couldn't stay in the job. As you know, uh, as well as anyone, um, when you've got a show that you're taking up to Edinburgh, you you pootle it around a few places and you sort of make sure that it works and you do these these previews. And I did I did a few of those and James came along uh, to either the first or second of those. And at the start of this, when I was when I was doing this show, I didn't read out my last diary entry. I didn't really explain why I'd left medicine. I just sort of, I sort of slightly fudged it in the end and was like, sort of, okay, and now I'm not a doctor. Okay, thanks. You've been a great audience. Good night. And, and James was like, what? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the show works, but it doesn't have an ending. And the truth of it was, at the time, I hadn't told him why I left medicine. I hadn't told anyone. The only people who knew were like the people who'd been on the same shifts as me, you know, you know, on that on that day or the people they'd talked to. I certainly had never opened up to any of my parents knew I'd left medicine. They didn't know why I'd left medicine. I just said, oh, I want to try something different. And it was very, very, very difficult saying this stuff on stage that I'd never spoken to anyone about before but maybe it was easier saying it on stage for the first time rather than you know sitting James down and saying oh by the way this is a this sort of quite bad thing that happened in my in my in my life so yeah I really I really did struggle to tell to tell that bit of it and then when it became a book the publishers wanted me to sort of dig a bit deeper into, you know, there's a sort of, there's a conclusion section after, after my diaries and there are little chunks in the, in between at the start of chapters when I sort of reflect and talk, talk around the topic a bit and they wanted me to dig deeper and I was very hesitant to, but I, I did. And I think the book is stronger for it, but I was only hesitant because it had been beaten into me that you don't talk about this stuff. And it probably didn't help that I'm from a family who doesn't talk about big stuff particularly readily. And I went to a school which is old fashioned in every sense of the word, not just, you know, the buildings and the and the Greek lessons, but also there's an atmosphere of, you know, stiff upper lip. And so all this combined together to to mean that I was I'm surprised with how honest about my life I have become as someone who generally like to keep things pretty quiet. I wonder how much that being quiet or keeping quiet and not talking about yourself how much that affected you sort of as you were growing up as as a young gay man 
I don't know, was there anyone in your, I think, I don't think we were much dissimilar age. Like, I don't know if there was, would there have been anyone in your year that was talking about sexuality? Was sexuality something that was discussed at home? Was it? I, um, no, I mean, this is another part of my life I could have dealt with a lot better. And if I was given my, my time again, I know I could have, I could know I could make myself a lot happier and make my ride a lot smoother by not having secrets because secrets in general aren't a good thing they they torture you and um I was yeah I was I wasn't out to 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 many people I felt very uncomfortable talking about that side of my life and now I don't in the slightest and it's something I talk about a lot and with huge pride and I owe a huge amount of that to to James who taught me how how great it is and how there's nothing to be ashamed about but I guess I'm a product of my upbringing where it's something that isn't so like you know, my little nieces and nephews, we've always been, since they were born, Uncle Adam and Uncle James. They've always had these people in their their lives, whether or not they like us. They're, you know, we're we're there and we're we're this gay married couple, and that is just that. So there's nothing scary or weird or other about it. I grew up in an environment where that wasn't a thing and gay was a pejorative term you know I realize that can still be the case in playgrounds but my hope is that things are a lot better and you know representation on tv I mean how amazing to watch something like it's a sin as a 12 year old who's just navigating their own sexuality how amazing not to grow up at a time where a government is criminalizing discussion of homosexuality at school i mean it doesn't take overt homophobia it takes a lot of soft markers that what you're doing or what you're feeling is different or wrong and that makes you suppress these things, particularly if, as I was, you're not the most confident, you're not the most popular. What have I got to gain as 12-year-old me by telling anyone about these feelings? It is so reassuring. I have We have a lot of people that write into the show that are quite young, who are out at school and sort of a part of their sort of LGBT plus uh groups and things like that and I so wonderful yeah it's just so amazing I just wish I I wish that that would have been my experience I know that I would have oh god my 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 late teens my early 20s would have been an awful lot easier I absolutely agree and I think we can't change our experiences all we can do as you know now older members of that wider community is to do what we can to to make life as easy as possible for 
younger people. And that is why it's so important to me to always talk about it. And like, not just in my life or, you know, when I'm speaking to, to friends on their podcast, but like in my kids' books, I talk about my husband and it's just, you know, only ever in a throwaway manner. But that hopefully is just, you know, that's the tiniest micro thing. But if that normalizes it to the seven-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old who's who's reading it, then that's just like, oh. And I've actually had a couple of parents be in touch with me to say, oh, he said, he said he's got a husband. Does that, that means he's gay? And, and they were like, yeah. They're like, okay, cool. So that's as important to me in a way as teaching them the stuff about more important than teaching about the stuff about the lungs they need for their exams. It's the, it's the little, again, it's the little bits that I've, I've threaded in about, you know, that side of, of things and about being open about mental health and mental illness, talking about body image, talking about smoking, drugs. Because if I've got these kids on my side and they trust me because I'm being silly and funny and I'm making fart jokes, they're much more likely, hopefully, to trust me on this potentially thornier stuff that is probably often only mentioned to them in quite hushed tones in a very serious, and this is the lesson where we're going to talk about, you know, smoking. It's so important. I think you're absolutely right. Those little like glimmers of, of, of difference being normalized just moments of saying oh yeah I've got a wife you've got a husband that's all very normal that's just how it is it's just how it is that's and the world yeah it's, it's the same with my analysis niece and nephew that I've just always been auntie Sue's and it's just it's not even they're like ah oh, they're both girls okay yeah. and it's so normal <laughs> and why shouldn't it be that's the thing because it is and you have to be taught actively taught that things are not normal in order to mm. form that world view. And there will always be people, there will always be those voices, you know, but it's just a case of having the other side of, of the balance. And also in telly. So the other half of my life is in, involved with, you know, writing stuff for telly. In fact, a long time before I started writing books, I was doing that sort of stuff. And there's always been gay representation on TV, pretty much. But the gay character has often been a stereotype mm -hmm. or the fact that someone is gay is the plot. Yes. And what I'm seeing more now and what I always try to do with my own stuff that I'm writing at the moment is being gay should be incidental because, you know, for most of us, it isn't our defining characteristic it's an important part of our life but it isn't our a plot in tv terms and yet in a lot of telly over the years you know being gay that that is that is the front and center characteristic and i'm seeing a lot more now of this is a gay character and they have a a, a partner of the the same sex or there are and less so i'd say with with trans characters i think that is still you know it seems to be the, the the a plot at the moment but these things need to become background and normal and that's my hope of the direction of travel yeah i hope so too more different types of queer people on screen but it not being about them being queer would make me very happy. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Because learning about the queer 
world at a time before the internet in an environment where I'm not meeting any of these people. It's it's TV and mm. like gimme, 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 you know, I, I think is a is a hilarious show and it taught me a huge amount about comedy and and Kathy Burke is a hero for our times but yes I think that might be the first gay character I was sort of really aware of on on telly and we're we're not all like that no and not to do down a brilliant show but that is a that's primary color painting and the, the the queer identity is essentially one of huge nuance and that's something that takes people a bit of getting getting used to and so I think seeing that that nuance and that diversity also writers 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 and you know I've been doing this for a while and I'm I'm lucky enough to to talk to a lot of younger writers now and to to help them if I can with their work People always seem to struggle, myself included, with like, what are the things that make this character interesting? What are the things that make them pop off the page and find some kind of interesting gender or queer identity that you don't see every day on telly? It doesn't need to be their big thing. It can be thing number five on your description of them. But that will help round out this character, make them this interesting diverse in all meanings of the word mm. character totally 3d person so like it will honestly help you as writers and it will help everyone who needs to see this stuff on telly and it isn't just young people is it it is also older people who have never been immersed in that in that world now i'd love for my parents to know more about this this world they you know they know a lot more about it now they've got a gay son, but there's a huge amount more they, they they could do. And you've got access to all these people through, um, th- you know, th- how many millions of people watch BBC One? I mean, how incredible to be able to get people to, to think about this world. I, I so agree with you. I so frequently would do self-tapes for jobs and it would always be like, the character is a lesbian and you're like that that is not enough that is that <laughs> yes. there are we we come in many flavors uh the gay men flavors are often more talked about but we also have flavors and no, we also are people Ab- absolutely absolutely and part of that also is the world in which the writing rooms are open to, yes, to people absolutely. from from all walks of life and i think it's fair to say that there've always been gay men in senior roles in television but I think there's been a lot of reticence to I don't know why I wonder if it's a sort of oh we don't want to scare the horses or whatever it is um <laughs> in terms of commissioning stuff that is that sort of is too too many standard deviations from the mean there's always been a reluctance mm. to that and just because you're a gay man doesn't mean that necessarily you're going to embrace you know, every member of the LGBTQ plus, you know, world to, to come into to come into your rooms and to and to write your script. So that is, you know, there's there's a big responsibility for the broadcasters and the production companies as well. Because that's the way to get an authentic voice, isn't it? 
you know. Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's that experience. I mean, it's coming back to your book. I think that's the reason that it, it, you know, it really sang for so many people is because it, it was authentic. It was honest. You know, you really knew it was your diary. You mentioned before about being sort of not the most sort of outrageous person, not the loudest person. Obviously now you've become sort of quite famous and you do, I've been to see one of your shows. Um, you're sort of really getting a, an idea of what a fan I am today, having seen the first, <laughs> uh, having to seen it in Edinburgh, read both of the books and seen it live. Um, but what, what is that like for you now playing? You know, I came to see you, I think at the Garrick Theatre, which oh, is yeah, like a yeah. beautiful West End theatre, sort of exactly what you imagine, listener, when you're thinking of a West End theatre, it's that, it's beautiful. <laughs> yes. And so what's that like for you now being sort of the centre of attention. I know that you did stand up and that is how we met, but in such a big room. And you, and you did weeks and weeks and weeks of it there, didn't you? I did. I mean, this show is, um, my my producers just said it's now been seen by over a quarter of a million people. That's a wow. lot. Oh, that's in incredible. Sort of, in, you know, in sort of big rooms up to like Hammersmith Apollo and Edinburgh Playhouse, which is like 3,000 plus seaters, I think. And it's easier for me to be... I don't know. It's easier for me to be outgoing on stage than it is in real life. And if I'm in, you know, if I'm at the, you know, someone's having their their birthday thing and I know three people there, I am never going to be the person who sort of is telling his big stories and then the crowd is coming around. That sort of, I'm, I'm slightly shuddering thinking about that at the moment. And yet when I'm going up, on stage it's somehow different and you know I know that people have paid their entrance fee and then and it's it would be quite rubbish for them if it's just a man staring at his feet and muttering for an hour (laughs) and a quarter but also there's something that really drives me in those shows which is it's essentially an hour or so of me being as funny as I can about, you know, the stuff in medicine. And then the biggest gear shift you can possibly imagine where I talk about the bad stuff and I reflect on it and I digest it. And I talk from the heart about what I've got to say. And I want people to leave thinking maybe slightly differently about the NHS and about doctors and how we care for the carers in a way. And that is the point of going on stage for me. So I'm more than happy to be the absolute clown for an hour and give it everything and come out of my comfort zone, probably as far as it's possible for me to do, apart from like sort of wing walking on a plane or something, um, so that I've got them and they trust me and they're interested in what I'm saying so that I can do that last quarter of an hour on on stage because that's what it's about for me and it's possible to you know and I'm lots of people have read about it in a book and you a book can be affecting but I don't think there is anything as powerful as a way of me telling this story as me sitting them all down in front of me and looking them in the eyes and going through what happened and I think it's probably close on impossible to hear what I've got to say in person and still think that doctors are greedy or that we're doing everything right by them or that we need to abolish the NHS and bring in some sort of insurance system. So 
it's such a huge privilege to be able to do do that on stage that that for me that 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 that's worth being so far out of my natural zone and also it, there's a very selfish part as well which is i used to regularly wake up back in that operating theater where i had this big disaster uh, in the middle of the night in a cold sweat 3am pulse going 300 beats a minute and that no longer happens because the difference now is I talk about it and mm. I'm talking about it to you. And, you know, two nights ago I was talking about it at York Grand Opera House and I will doubtless be talking about it in a couple of days to some more people on stage. And that is, yeah, it's good for, it's good for me. I've, I'm my own experiment in the fact that it's very bad to keep things bottled up like the old fashioned way of, being a doctor tells you you should and the fact that if you do talk about it it does does really help and it potentially helps other people i'm i'm aware that lots of people who are in healthcare professions come to my shows and also read my books and so i've heard from any number of of doctors saying that until they read that at the end of my book they thought that they were the first doctor who'd ever cried in the locker room and mm. it's very, very isolating when you think that you're the one who's struggling and failing, particularly. And then when you find out that everyone else has just been pretending the whole time. It's so affirming to read something back off the page, isn't it? It's so affirming to know that someone has felt like you. And that's, yeah, that's obviously what your book does for all those people. The, the, the email that says that has helped me as a doctor is worth 10 emails that say, your book's been, you know, translated into another language. I mean, that is my metric for success with this book is is unconventional because it's taught me that I can in some small way be something helpful to someone. And that's an amazing feeling, particularly as someone who feels guilty for leaving a job where you did help people to go obviously the arts have enormous value and I'm there's no bigger defender of the arts than me but it's very difficult for anyone to claim that me doing my stand-up set is is anywhere near to me saving a baby's life at a cesarean section so yeah that that helps me as as well so yeah and also, you know, I've 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 been to more service stations than I would, I would ever imagine there, there were in one country. And that's a treat. <laughs> that is the real treat. And <laughs> um, I, know, I know that you're doing your the, the tour still. Is that the It's Going to Hurt tour? The, I think the remaining dates are, it was the night shift before Christmas. Yes. So from uh, November into, into December, doing sort of 20 odd dates around the country, ending up at the Hammersmith Apollo, which is jolly. So it's sort of, that's less harrowing potentially as a show, but still it's sort of... The fact that I have a show, just reading out diary entries, just talking about the number of Christmases that I worked on Labour Ward is a measure of, you know, the impact the job has on, on someone's life. I think six out of the seven Christmases I was qualified as a doctor on Labour Ward, um, I, was, I was at work, so I barely saw my family, So which was wonderful, really. 
<laughs> well, I can highly recommend, obviously, the book. If you've been listening to this conversation for the last hour, you know that. But also, I've seen the, the live show and I'm going to try and come along to the Christmas one as well. Now, Adam, I have one more very quick question to ask you before of I course. let you get on with your day. And it's a question that we ask absolutely everyone that comes on the show. And I guess I'm thinking about the version of Adam that was maybe at Dulwich College that, that wasn't the most flamboyant person and wasn't the most confident person. And maybe I'm thinking that there's someone that's listening is maybe in a similar point in their life at the moment, maybe realising who they are, working out their identity, working out how to sort of like themselves, I guess, as a queer person. If you could reach out to them and give them a little bit of advice, what would you say? I would say that, and I'm not the first person to say this, that coming out isn't something that you do once. It's something that you do every single day of your life from the new person you meet at the party to explaining to the hotel receptionist, no, you actually do want uh, the, the, the double room, not, not the twin. And so I don't know how many times I've come out, but it must be thousands. And I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times that that was anything other than a positive experience. Even when I'd got myself worked up about it in a big way, like not long before she died, I told my my grandmother, who I loved very much, and I was, it had been occupying my thoughts for, for so long, and I picked her up on the way to go to Christmas dinner at my, my parents' house, and I said, by the way, when you get there, you're going to see my new partner, and it's a guy, and he's called James and just to just just to let you know and she turned ashen and then she said oh my god i've not got him a christmas present oh. is there anywhere we can stop and i was like no and it is it's a positive thing to to do to 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 come out and it gets less scary every single time you do it and i can't promise that it's going to be a totally smooth ride every single time but rounding up Basically, a lot of this is just in your head about how people are going to react. And most people are nice and kind and thoughtful. And some of them will know already and some of them won't. But ultimately, it's something that is an important part of your life and and you won't regret doing. That is a perfect ending. And oh, bless your grandmother. What a lovely woman. Uh, Adam, that has been so fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to me. No, thanks for having me, Susie. That was the brilliant Adam Kay. Thank you so, so much for listening. If you want to get in touch, you always can. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Please share this this podcast with your friends, with your family, with anyone that you think might enjoy it, with anyone who you think minds need to be changed or encouraged, let's say. Uh, Share it with them as well. And uh, if you want to get in touch with me, you always can. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. One more thing. On the 22nd of December, Joe Lysett is throwing the ultimate Christmas do live on Channel 4, and I'm on the guest list. It will be an evening sprinkled with celebrity guests, drag queens, music performances, and big festive surprises. And the show is going to be live from Birmingham City Centre and queer as hell. Members of the LGBTQIA community and allies alike are welcome. 
As part of the show, Joe will create his own naughty and nice list and is currently accepting nominations from members of the public. For the naughty lists, reasons for your nominations and stories should be cheeky and fun. Or maybe you want to say thank you for someone for supporting you in something huge in your life. Nominate your friend or family member for the nice list to say thank you. If you have a family member or friend that you think will be perfect for either list, get in touch and tell Joe why. Or you can nominate yourself. Let us know. Those that end up on the naughty or nice list may end up receiving a festive surprise live on air. So make sure it's a story that you'll be happy to share and ultimately that you'll enjoy taking part in the show. To share your story and nominate someone you know or yourself, email xmas at rumpusmedia.co.uk. Remember, it's totally live, so you have to be available in Birmingham on the 22nd of December. For more information on how Rumpus stores your data, visit www.rumpusmedia.co.uk forward slash privacy. It's going to be an awful lot of fun, so why don't you get in touch and tell us who you think should be on the naughty or nice list. I will see you next week for another brilliant conversation. And until then, you look after yourself. Okay, bye-bye.